if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. We're doing an occasional or intermittent series of episodes on the Eucharist as a part of the three-year Eucharistic revival that has been launched by the United States Council of Catholic Bishops. We talked about the reasons for this three-year revival in the first episode in this series, which was episode 36, Making the Eucharist Matter Again. You can find it in the archive. Now, during the last two episodes, we explored the general metaphysical miracle that occurs every time a Catholic Mass is celebrated, and the first of three particular miracles that are associated with the Eucharistic prayer, the miracle of consecration. In today's discussion, Corey and I continued by looking at the second particular miracle, the transubstantiation of the elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Transubstantiation means exactly what it sounds like. The substance is transformed into something else, while the appearance remains the same. This is often called the doctrine of the real presence, that the Lord is really present in the bread and wine after they have been consecrated. Now, if there is anything that separates Catholics from Protestants, it's this doctrine of transubstantiation, really more than even the arguments over faith and works. And yet, surveys have shown that most baptized and confirmed Catholics in America either don't know about, don't understand, or don't believe in the real presence of Christ and the elements. How can so many Catholics be confused about something that's well, this central to our faith. So, over the next 30 minutes, Corey and I are going to do our best to make this vital teaching of the church as clear as we possibly can. Okay, so Corey, we've been having a, some conversations here about the miracle or miracles yes. of the Mass. And in the first one, we got a little into like metaphysics and the metaphysics of the Mass, the point of which was the entire Mass is a miracle mm -hmm. in which the supernatural and the natural intersect in a miraculous way. Right. And then in the last conversation, we talked about the first of at least three specific or distinct or particular miracles that occur, and that is the consecration that occurs when the, the space and the priest, the, the Eucharistic celebration is in a sense consecrated. But today we're going to talk about after that, after the priest acts in the person of Christ, standing in the sanctuary on the altar of sacrifice, 
and he calls down the Holy Spirit Mm -hmm. uh, in the Eucharistic prayer, he then elevates the elements. So he elevates the host and he elevates the chalice. And he then says, this is my body and this is my blood. Mm -hmm. And what happens next has been controversial since Jesus was alive, actually. Because in John chapter 6, when Jesus sort of introduces this idea of eating my flesh and drinking my blood, when you have uh, the disciples at the Last Supper who don't maybe clearly understand what's going on, when you have the early church in which occasionally the Eucharistic meals or the communion meals were being abused, Paul talks about that. Mm -hmm. He actually uh, upgrades Peter at one point for uh, uh, maybe uh, behaving inappropriately during the the communion meals Mm -hmm. or celebrations as they were uh, in Antioch. And it goes on from there. There were misunderstandings amongst the Romans. There's misunderstandings in the medieval day. Uh, There were certainly misunderstandings with the Protestant reformers and on down to today. So what is it that happens? Why don't you explain for us and sort of basic Catholic catechesis. What exactly happens when the priest consecrates the elements, uh, holds them up and says, this is my body and this is my blood? Right. So in the simplest possible terms, I can think of what was bread and wine becomes the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. It still looks like bread and wine. Um, The appearance does not change. But what the thing is has changed, and it is now Jesus, literally. Now, that's where people trip up, right. the literally There's part. obviously a, a lot more to talk about. That's just the basic. So let's dive into that. Yes. Okay. So there was a misunderstanding. We go back to John chapter 6 when Jesus first begins to introduce this idea. Now, he hasn't, he hasn't you know, died and been right. resurrected yet, so he hasn't instituted the Eucharist yet, but he's alluding to the coming of the Eucharist in John chapter six. Right. And he starts talking about this and he starts talking about it in pretty graphic ways. In fact, the Greek there indicates that he's literally talking about eating and consuming my body and blood. And the people react bad, poor, (laughs) react poorly. Why don't you talk about what happens when he, when he starts saying that to the crowds? Because these are the crowds right after like, you know, they're falling around, he's feeding them lunch and everything else. And then he, after feeding them lunch, he gets into this like totally weird speech. Well, yeah. I mean, if you take a step back, um, from any Christian, um, belief or, or upbringing that you might have and think about just how insane that sounds outside of the context of believing that Christ, that Jesus is, is God and is doing something extraordinary here. If somebody just came up to you and said, in order to have eternal life, you have to eat me here, go ahead, <laughs> um, which, which he didn't um, because he had not died and, and offered his sacrifice yet. But if somebody said that to you, you would think they were totally nuts. Um, and, and, and you would be justified in that because a, it would be monstrous presumption um, to, right. to say that about yourself. But B, of, of course, eating someone, cannibalism, is quite rightly understood to be a, a, a terrible thing. So what happens when he says that to the crowds, they, they leave. Right. Almost everyone, um, he asks the apostles whether they want to leave too. And, and the only reason they can give for, for not doing that is what Peter says, is where would we go? You have the words of everlasting right. life. But basically all the crowds that had just been, you know, maybe fed lunch, you know, miraculously and everything else, they got the, you know, the box lunch on the hillside all said, 
I'm out of here. This is this. I was I was here for the the healing the sick people, and I was here for the free lunches, and I was here for the you know love thy neighbor thing. But this just got super weird. It and, got you know. it got creepy. Well, and, and and even more so in Jewish culture because of course the the law of God had taught them for hundreds and hundreds right. of years um, not to eat even even the blood and the flesh of an animal, let right. alone of a person. Right. That's that's part of the scandal. What Jesus mm-hmm. says. Uh, there and then in the institution of the Eucharist, when he starts talking about drinking his blood, that's a uh, an absolute prohibition against that in uh, the Jewish dietary laws. Right. Because the blood is understood as the life of that creature. Right. Um, and so you, you are essentially taking, appropriating to yourself the life of that creature. So when Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, starts saying to this it's it's scandalous it's either he's introducing a new principle or it's it's scandalous okay so then that misunderstanding then the the christians start practicing this and then the romans begin to misunderstand you want to talk about that well yeah and you can totally understand how this would come about in their context um so they inquire into what the christians are doing they say we eat the body and blood of the lord um who is this man who lived such and such you crucified him he rose from the dead they said, okay, you're eating a man. You're, you're eating a person. This is cannibalism. And they say, well, well, no, but we are eating him. This is his flesh and blood. And they say, okay, so it's cannibalism. Yeah. Now, see, this is an important point because that was one of the charges that Romans had and, and that a lot of Roman communities or sort of the general public in Rome were offended by the Christians because they, they thought that they were sacrificing infants or children mm-hmm. in their, their secret celebrations of the Eucharist to consume flesh and blood. Right. And what I've always found weird about that is if you know anything about Roman culture and history, and then you know that the Romans were used to symbols and ceremonies. Everything in Rome was some kind of a symbolic and religious ceremony. Mm-hmm. So if you said to them, hey, we have this symbolic ceremony thing, the Romans would go, oh, we get that because mm-hmm. we totally understand something. Okay, it's ever- not really his flesh right. and blood. So when they were like, wait a minute, what are you guys, we're talking about eating? You know, is that, that's just like a symbol, right? Or some kind of, a, you know, like a religious ceremony? No, we're really eating flesh and blood. Oh, now you creeped out even the Romans. Mm-hmm. And the thing there is, I think it, it emphasizes that the early Christians, even under the threat of persecution, stressed the literal nature of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, then we get to, uh, let's jump forward to the reformers, okay. you know, Luther, Calvin, whatnot. And they totally have a break here. This is kind of a hard break with the reformers in terms of the literal transformation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. As we've said in other episodes, they, the various reformers or branches of the Reformation went different directions with their own take on it. Right, right. But universally, they had a hard break with it. And so, you know, you coming out of Lutheran background, Luther had this idea, maybe it's worth talking about for a second here, is going back to our metaphysics thing. Mm -hmm. Luther's idea was that Christ was present in the sense that he was occupying the same space. Right. He would not say that the bread and wine have changed or are gone, that they are still there. Christ is also there. Christ is also there. And this is the, he's over, under, around, and spread through, that he is, in a sense, the presence of Christ is permeating or penetrating, occupying. If you imagine the presence of the Lord is right in the middle of that bread and wine, Mm -hmm. um, in a sense, occupying the same space and time. Um, And so when you consume that, in a sense, he's present there. Calvin 
had a more legal understanding of it. So Calvin said, well, no, it's when you consume it in faith, God, in a sense, credits it. He gives you a credit. He says, well, it kind of is as if you were consuming the body and blood. Mm -hmm. You're not really consuming the body and blood, but it's as if you were in faith. Um, and, And then, you know, you have Zwingli and others who said, well, no, it's just a symbol. So Protestants have been all over the board. But the one thing that they all agreed on is it's not what the Catholics said. Mm-hmm. It's not literally transformed into the body and blood. And so the Reformation put a pressure on the church that had never really had in quite the same way up to that point. Yeah, and there had been controversies. There had been controversies. During the Middle Ages that had helped the church to hone its understanding, but yeah. not, not at this level. But at this level, the church reacts to the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, the Council of Trent and other mm-hmm. kind of like Counter-Reformation writers to, to sharpen its pencil and define what it means in very particular terms, right? right. And again, that's based on teaching that had been around for a very long time, particularly in the high middle ages, with Thomas Aquinas and whatnot. What it does is it defines a doctrine called transubstantiation. Okay. So why don't we unpack what transubstantiation means? What is the particular miracle that occurs when the priest uh, consecrates those elements. So now that we've gotten down to definitions, um, we can uh, flesh out some of the things we said earlier, especially at the beginning with what is happening here. So you have a distinction that's being made, and this distinction goes back to Aristotle. Um, it's adopted um, through the scholastics in the Middle Ages, most especially St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, it's, it's a way of articulating reality um, in a way that we can understand what's happening. And so you have a distinction between essence or substance, that substantiation and transubstantiation, and accident. So substance... No, no let me just intervene yeah. in here. Because those terms, the de- essence and accident or substance and accident, are a little bit unfortunate they, the, because mm-hmm. modern people are confused by them. They're technical terms that come out of uh, Aristotle, passed down through the scholastics. We might say the difference between substance and form. Accident's a weird word for, for, I mean, because it's not how we use the word accident. Sure. But even form, I think is a little, little problematic, but yeah. 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 But, but let's not put this in sort of simple terms for people who are listening, right? Mm-hmm. So you have what something is, right? That would be its essence or its substance. And then for lack of a better word, what form or appearance that takes, right? Right, exactly. So with, with substance, that, that is what the thing is. Um, and then accident is, is its appearance or, or what it is like um, in a way that's not connected to the essence in, in an essential way. So there, there's lots of good examples for this. So you are you, um, whether you dye your hair or get old or, um, or lose a part of your body, the essence of you or the substance of you is your you-ness. And then these accidents, these things that can change these parts of your, your form or the, the way you manifest yourself are changeable without changing the essence of what you are. Yeah, that's a great analogy. And just as an aside, it's, it's part of the reason for a Catholic moral theology on life, mm-hmm. right? So we say whether you're a fetus, you know, one second after conception or you're a doddering old man or anything in between, you're still you. 
And so, as you say, whether you're just a collection of a clump of cells, or whatever it's called, a zygote or whatever, and mm-hmm. an embryo, and then a fetus, or, you know, however that, whatever the technical terms are, all the way to birth, and then you're a, you know, strapping young lad, and then you're an athlete, and then you're a doddering old man, you're still you. Right. And of course, you can use these terms to describe other things. A chair is a chair, whether it's a black chair, a brown chair, a white chair, a soft chair, a hard chair, like th- th- its chairness is not affected so to speak. Yeah. Um, we're going to go down we're going to slippery yeah. slope here of, of Anselm versus Occam on, yeah. <laughs> on, on metaphysical realism. Yeah, let's, but let's let me, let me, let me try an analogy that I recognize as a bad analogy because all analogies are limited mm-hmm. because often what analogy really is, is that we look around to find something and say, this thing is kind of like this. But when we talk about things like, it's like, why well, I think we can't um, find any analogy for the Trinity. Because the Trinity, there's nothing exactly like it. So you right. can't point to some other thing and go, it's like that because nothing is exactly like it. But nevertheless, an analogy that I found that a lot of people wrap their minds around is let's take water. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, if you said, what is water? You would say, aside from the philosophical realism, all that, you would say, well, it's what? Two hydrogen atoms and an oxygen atom, mm-hmm. right? It's H2O, right? right? The definition of water is two hydrogen atoms bonded to an oxygen atom. But water takes many forms. Mm -hmm. It can be liquid. It can be a gas like steam. It can be, uh, you know, a solid as ice, Uh, but it's all water. It can be, you can color it, right? You can add stuff to make it smell bad. You can, right, you know, you can carbonate it. It can be inside of a body. Right. But it's still H2O. And in that sense... What you say is the H2O is like the substance of it. Again, I know that people with philosophical whatever will write me an email and go, that's not exactly right, but I get it. But to help people sort of write their mind around that, that's what it is. But then it takes all these other forms. And in that way, what we're saying in the Eucharist and transubstantiation is that that is, that fundamental formula is altered while the appearance. So like, again, analogy, bad analogy. But if we had, uh, say, a, 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 a glass of water and we somehow or God somehow miraculously altered the chemical structure of that, right? Added mm-hmm. a extra atom or something or other, but it still retained the form of a glass of water. You would look at it and go, well, is it still water? It has become, well, it still appears to be water, it has become something else in its, in its, in its fundamental substance or essence. Right. And, and that's a, a good way to think about it. But we do, um, as, as you said yourself, have to realize that the analogies break down because it is something that's, that's different from any other process that happens in the world. Because at the physical level, if you added another hydrogen atom or something to the, to the water molecules, it, it would alter its substance, it would be different. It would be a different chemical. It would react differently with other chemicals. It wouldn't be the same substance anymore. But in the Eucharist, when transubstantiation occurs in the mass, the the substance, what the thing is, changes without any alteration to the outward appearance, um, what we call the accident or the or the form 
Um, so it still tastes like bread and wine. It still looks like bread and wine. Yeah. Like yeah. I get, I get that when we get down to the atomic level, right? So imagine at the subatomic level, but the point I'm just trying to help people right. wrap their mind down around. And I think this is the misunderstanding is it still looks like bread and it still t- looks like wine and it still tastes like bread and it still tastes like wine. Right. But it's been altered. Right. It's altered in a way that you can't perceive. Right. Right. Yeah. And that is perceived by faith. Right. Now, I will push back even a little, and that is where the transubstantiation, right? So there is a a transformation of its substance Mm -hmm. to something else while the outward appearance or form, technically called by Aristotle, the accident stays the same. And yet there are miracles, uh, Eucharistic miracles that occur where there is an alteration of the substance materially. Right. And, and that would be an additional miracle. That, w- right. that wouldn't That's, be transubstantiation. So, so let's, be, let's, yeah. yeah. Right. So we'll get to that in a second because let's stick, let's camp on this one just mm-hmm. for a second, make sure we've tied, you know, all the bows and knots up here on this deal. Mm-hmm. Right. So transubstantiation, the Catholic teaching on it right. is that at that moment, it has become literally the body and blood, but not, it does not appear to be the body and blood. Right. I had a Lutheran friend uh, when I was considering Catholicism who used to make fun of this. And he'd say, so if I stick the, your little, you know, Jesus wafer with a, with a fork, will it, will it bleed or cry out or whatever? Uh, and I went, boy, you're really missing the point, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get to a moment because in some weird instances, God does an additional miracle. But we really are saying, and that's why, by the way, because it has been altered and has become literally the body and blood, that changes how we handle it in the right. Catholic Church. You want to talk yeah, about a- the handling of the... Yeah, because you you are literally, the priest at that point in the Mass is literally holding Christ in his hands, is holding God in his hands. And so that needs to be handled with the utmost reverence and worship. Um, and so it's handled very carefully um, in, in, during the rest of the Mass. Um, it's either consumed reverently by the priest or the people. The wine, not wine anymore, the blood of Christ is consumed. The vessels are cleaned. And then uh, the, many of the, the hosts, Christ, Christ's body, are often reserved um, very reverently in a tabernacle in the church um, if uh, occasion arises for it to be brought to someone who's sick or otherwise can't come to the church or for adoration, things, things that we've talked about before. And so, yeah, you can't treat it as if it's still bread and wine because it isn't anymore. Right. And so that means also we have to protect, protect it. So right. for example, this is a big thing in Catholic churches, right? We have the tabernacle where there was, so once you've consecrated it, you can't, you can't throw it away and you certainly can't tell that people take it and run off and do whatever they want, whatever they want with it. Yeah. And so there's a lot of rules towards the preservation of that. It's also why the priest needs to consume all of the wine because you can't keep the wine in the same way that you can preserve the, the hosts, but uh, he consumes it all. Mm-hmm. And then all that is driven by this, this understanding that the, these, these elements have been transmuted. Right. And, and because the substance has been changed, because it literally is God, it is Christ, our worship is due to it. It, it is literally God. And, and that is a huge hangup of the Protestant Reformation and, and is behind or at least alongside a lot of those doctrinal fights and changes is that to someone who doesn't believe that it has been changed, that transubstantiation is true, it looks like idolatry. It looks like worshiping a piece of bread or a chalice of wine. 
you know, um, this would be a topic for some other time, but um, the conspiratorial part of my mind, which often runs uh, a rather amok, um, has often thought that in a sense, the Reformation was driven less by the, you know, the faith versus works thing. That became a sort of justification for rebellion against the authority of the church. And part of that required a change in the understanding of the Eucharist. Because if you do have, um, understand uh, the Eucharist in terms of transubstantiation, then you need priests to be able to um, consecrate it and to handle it. And those priests then have authority that are given to them by the church and through the hierarchy of the church. And if you want to sort of um, be able to move away from the church, in a sense, having control of worship, you change the understanding of the Eucharist, which makes it possible for, for you to see it merely as a symbol, and then you don't need priest and the bishop and the pope and the rest of it. Yeah, or or another way to phrase it, because the Eucharist is so central in the teachings of the Catholic Church and in the practice of the Catholic Church, it's a kind of linchpin. And if you change it or if you object to it, then everything else around it has to change too. If, if If your understanding of the Eucharist is different, then your understanding of the priesthood has to be different. And then your understanding of ecclesiology, how the church is structured and governed, changes. Um, and, and it's all a, a domino effect from there. Yeah. And if you're interested in that, by the way, those of you who are listening, um, you can go back a few episodes in this series on the podcast. And, and I did an episode in which we talked about why the Eucharist is such a big deal to Catholics when it's kind of maybe like a sort of a medium-sized deal to Protestants. Mm-hmm. So you can go back and take a listen to that. Um, but let's come back here. So it seems to me there's, uh, there's uh, two miracles that occur in every mass related to transubstantiation, and then sometimes an extraordinary miracle beyond that. So the two that occur is the transubstantiation of the elements mm-hmm. uh, that we've been describing. And the second is, well, how is it possible for Christ to be in all of the Catholic churches, on all of the altars and all the world at the same time? And I've heard people say that, like that just seems absurd to them. I never really understood, even when I was a Protestant, and I guess, you know, I'm talking to somebody who did, went down the road to Rome, but if I look back and confess, I, I, this never really bothered me intellectually. Like, you know, as Protestants, and especially, you know, Bible, what we call Bible-believing, more fundamentally Bible-believing Protestants, we believed in all kinds of miracles, right? We, we believed in all the miracles of the Bible literally took place. So I always thought, well, if, if God can stop the sun in the sky and create the world in six days and, you know, flood the world and, you know, float Noah's boat and, you know, raise Lazarus and do everything else, he said, Christ being present on all the altars in all the world at the same time felt like small ball to me. Um, and so did transubstantiating the elements felt like not an extraordinary miracle compared to all the other miracles we'd willing, which is why I always thought it was odd that we sort of dug our heels in on this one. And we're, uh, would allow every other kind of miracle, you know, miracle that God could do, but not this one. So, yeah, number one, it's transubstantiated. And number two, Christ is present here at St. So-and-so's and down the block at St. So-and-so's and St. Such-and-Such's and around the corner and on the other side of the planet at St. So-and-so's. And at all of those altars on all of the Catholic churches in all of the world, Jesus is 
present in all those places. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, it's because he's God and he does as he likes. <laughs> right. Um, and, and I think part of it, too, is that there's a distinction or, or categories of presence that we're able to recognize in the Catholic Church um, that I think sometimes are more implicit, at least in popular understanding among Protestants, because, I mean, they would understand that God is everywhere, that his presence permeates the whole universe. And so if that's the case, and that's a different kind of presence, of course, because it's not as if Jesus is literally in the body everywhere, but he's present in a different way, then why would it be impossible for him to be present in, in a corporal way in his body in more than one place, if he can be spiritually present anywhere? Well, I think, you know, the, the answer to that is people can imagine that spirit sort of transcends matter. You can spiritually be everywhere. But the, the, the objection to Catholicism on this point is that transubstantiation says that God becomes particularly present. Sure. Or Christ becomes particularly present in a particular place in a particular way, literally by his body and blood. I mean, again, I think it's kind of a kind of a lame critique because, again, I don't see that Protestants have any problem imagining God is, in a sense, having almost infant miraculous power. So I didn't know why he would be limited in this way. But it is matter behaving in a way that's completely different. Than, well, that's it. It's a yeah. miracle. And the answer is, well, it's a miracle. And I, I, I think that's actually a pretty literal, I mean, a, a, a pretty valid way to respond. You go, well, how can somebody be in all the altars and all the places in all the world? Well, they can. But Jesus can when he chooses to do a miracle. And that's why we're saying this is a miracle of the Mass. Now, those two happen, transubstantiation and the presence of Christ in transubstantiation everywhere. But there's a third very rare sort of uh, extra, extraordinary miracle of transubstantiation that sometimes occurs. Yeah. And, And that is when... There's some kind of sensible or perceivable change. Um, And so we we talked back a a little bit when we were talking about miracles, about it being something that's objective, whether or not we can perceive it. Um, And then there are miracles of perception where how we're able to to understand or perceive the world has changed. And so the Eucharist is always a miracle that is objective. Something changes whether we notice or not. Sometimes God does something extra on top of that to help us notice. Um, that Christ is present. And so there, there are different ways that this happens. Um, a lot of times it's uh, a miraculous uh, manifestation of, of blood or of flesh um, to show that that's what this is, that the, the bread and wine have been changed into the body and blood of Christ, um, either temporarily or, or sometimes things that endure for quite a long time. Um, it's it's an extra thing that God does very rarely to to as an aid to faith, essentially. So a few minutes ago, when we were talking about uh, changing the substance and not the form and all that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and you we were making the point that He changes what the thing is, but not necessarily its corporal substance. Right. right? What we're saying is sometimes in extraordinary situations, God actually does change the bread and the wine into something extraordinary. So it doesn't just appear, it's not just uh, in, a, in the normal sense a miracle, it's an ex, a miracle on top of that. So let me give you two examples, mm-hmm. okay? And they both come from eh, maybe like a hundred miles away from each other. So in, uh, in Italy, two of my favorite places to visit when, when I go are the town of Orvieto in Perugia and uh, also the, uh, in the town of uh, Siena uh, in Tuscany. And both of them have verifiable 
classic Eucharistic miracles that occurred in them. And in Orvieto, they have a cloth that has been preserved from the Eucharistic miracle of Bolsonaro, which is a small town nearby Orvieto. And long story, but basically in the Middle Ages, the Pope was hanging out in Orvieto to escape the plague. And in a parish church in this small town of Bolsonaro, the, the wafer, that a consecrated wafer of the Eucharist um, bled, bled onto the altar cloth. And they brought that to, you know, the Pope. And you can, to this day, it's been, the, the, the thing has been examined scientifically in a number of different ways. And I'm not going to get into all that right now. You can go up online and look at it. But basically it's this extraordinary instance where when, uh, particularly at that time when faith was flagging, people were discouraged in, in the time of plague, all of a sudden God on this one day, on this one time, in this one particular way, decided to show that that wafer really had become his body by allowing this thing basically to, to bleed human blood. The other one is in uh, Siena. And the last time we were there with a group, there was a, a miracle that occurred in, again, in the Middle Ages. But what happened was some thieves broke into the cathedral there to the church and stole out of the tabernacle or they stole the tabernacle because uh, it was covered with gold and all that. And so they stole the tabernacle and the people got really upset, not just because the gold tabernacle was gone, but because in the tabernacle uh, was, um, you know, the uh, consecrate hosts. And I think the number is like 234 or something like 240 consecrate hosts. And so they pleaded with the thieves and the thieves returned the hosts. And to this day, those hosts, which would have lasted under normal circumstances a matter of weeks, have stayed uncorrupted. And we got to see them. So they're in like this, this uh, chapel and there's like this bank vault door thing that you go in there and they have to, guy has to push a button and it's like, and this thing comes out open and you can go up and, and right behind this glass or is this, this kind of glass container with 235 or whatever it is, uncorrupted hosts that have been around for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and that's a case where God not only did the normal, normal miracles of transubstantiation in his presence, but then also did this sort of super extraordinary miracle of changing the nature of those hosts to either bleed or be uncorrupted. Yeah, and there are different kinds. The ones you just highlighted are where God physically changes something. Um, sometimes it's uh, a, a vision or it's something that's temporary, so you don't have a, a lingering um, physical effect like like the ones you talked about. But in all of these different cases, it's something that that makes the invisible visible in an extraordinary way. And so that's it, the miracle of transubstantiation. And, and if you're looking for something that is maybe kind of like an ultimate uh, hard, sharp line between Catholicism and non-Catholicism, uh, really transubstantiation in the Eucharist is maybe that hard, sharp, bright line. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know a lot of Protestants, I, I was one at one point that could begin to gradually accept a lot of things about Catholicism, the moral teachings of the church, maybe some of the, the doctrinal things, uh, and this and that, but you get to the nature of the Eucharist and transubstantiation of the Eucharist. And that really is 
really a thing that distinguishes Catholicism from almost every other, uh, at least from Protestant mm-hmm. Christianity. Yeah. So great. Well, thank you, Corey. Yep. Thank right, you. Bye. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.